Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. S2 is the official cognitive evaluation in sports, from youth to pro, where athletes and coaches build to win. Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. I'm your host, Harrison Hunter, and today we are joined by softball legend and ESPN play-by-play personality, Amanda Scarborough. Amanda played college softball at Texas A&M, where she became the first player ever from the Big 12 to earn both Freshman of the Year and Player of the Year honors. She was an All-American, Conference Player of the Year, and Big 12 Pitcher of the Year. She has covered softball for ESPN since 2009 and has been a part of the last eight college softball World Series calls. Today, we walk through the softball pitching evaluation in a sequential order to understand more in-depth about the processes that we are evaluating. Amanda provides beautiful feedback on how each of these cognitive processes impact performance on the diamond. That interview is next here on the S2 Cognition Podcast. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to have you on to talk about S2 Cognition and softball. So thanks so much for your time today. We're going to dive into a little bit of how we're thinking. I mean, you've taken the evaluation yourself and the five things that we measure in softball. So the cognitive things that a pitcher has to do when they're executing a pitch. As soon as their foot steps on the rubber, what are the things that are happening between the ears and how they process? So I'm going to go ahead and punt over to Scott. Scott, will you walk us through those five things that we have in the battery? and we'll just uh, have a flowy conversation from there. Yeah, no, that'd be great. And yeah, I, I, I echo Harrison's enthusiasm for having you on here, Amanda. Really excited. Probably a few people on the planet who've thought about pitching as much as you have. And so this is great to, to uh, peel back the uh, onion a little bit and get your depth and your, your insight. Um, yeah, let's kind of unfold. Like you said, we have five processes that whether pitchers are aware of it or not, they're having to think along these ways. Their, their brains are doing things to help configure the execution, to help set up the, the their focus and what they're what they're about to do for every pitch. And so understanding how these processes unfold on a pitch-by-pitch basis. And then understanding that you can, you know, get insight into the aspects of these processes that you may struggle with or maybe, uh, you know, really good at and need to trust yourself. I think, Amanda, you're going to help us understand how important this is to, to pitchers and developing and, and getting better. Let's start with what's happening as a pitcher is stepping into the circle, approaching the rubber. <sighs> Undoubtedly, every pitch carries a unique set of situational influences and factors, right? Uh, Every pitch, there could be runners on base, maybe not. Uh, The infield has shifted in certain ways. It's a certain inning. There's a certain score. There's a certain number of outs. There's a certain count. There are hitters' tendencies. There are pitchers' tendencies. All of these factors converge in the pitcher's mind to figure out on this particular pitch, what am I going to throw? What is the strategy? And some of this is kind of predetermined, right? A pitcher is studied, they prepared, they know the heat chart uh, for a particular hitter. Um, But some some of what a pitcher has to do is pick up subtle tendencies, Right. You can prepare all you want, but hitters are going to expose themselves. They're going to show something that maybe you couldn't get on paper. An offense may have a strategy because they're trying to figure out how to best approach you as a pitcher and your strengths and weaknesses. Amanda, one of our 
uh, one of our assessments is captures just that, this kind of instinctive, intuitive learning ability to pick up on subtle things. And some brains, athletes and non-athletes, are really good at noticing things, just the subtle things when they're playing. Other athletes are going to be less aware of some of the nuance. You tell them what it is, you got to give them guidance, they'll be able to execute, but they may not pick it up on their own as well. So we have a, a measure of instinctive learning that tells an athlete, hey, do you think that way? Pick up those subtle probabilities and tendencies, or is that going to be something you can struggle with? How important is that to a pitcher? And how have you seen that play out in kind of your your working with pitchers? Yeah, I um I love the patterns and the tenant at finding the patterns and finding the tendencies and the differences. It reminds me of um there was that book that I had when I was a little kid called Highlights. Do you guys remember that? Um it was like a yes. like a magazine type thing. I, I mean, it is old school, right? Yes. But it was just things to do, activities for a kid to do. So you'd open the book and so it would be with numbers and colors. I mean, very young kids, right? But one of the activities was like, um, here's a picture with like a lot going on in it. And here's another picture that looks the same, but there are some things that are missing or different or tweaked in it and find the 10 things that are different. To me, like instinctive learning is just being able to identify those small little nuances and things that are different. Like it really reminds me of that activity that I did as a kid from where the hitter is standing in the box. Like where is her front foot? Where is her back foot? Is she more on top of the plate? Is she more away from the plate now? Her, her adjustments tell you what to be able to do, what to be able to throw, um, and kind of gives you, um, I think just insight into where her brain is at. And if I can kind of figure out where, what she's thinking, then I can move my chess piece in a different direction as well. So um, not just where the batter is standing with her feet, just moving up, moving up a little bit, like are her hips slightly angled at a different angle for this at bat or her hands kind of higher or starting lower this at bat, just all these little things from what a hitter is doing really starts to tell me um, what, what, she's our, how she's trying to beat me. And my goal is just to, to pick up on that. And I think too, Scott is, is that those are just kind of like the physical parts that you can see, like in that highlights thing, that activity that I'm talking about. Um, but then I think of an offensive approach of how many times they're taking a first pitch is how many times are they taking a first pitch strike? Um, also where can I put a first, where can I put my first strike and will they swing at it? Can I move it a little bit further off of the plate to not have to come as on the plate if they are being more aggressive? So are they being more aggressive or are they being more passive? Are they being more aggressive on up or are they being more aggressive on down? Are they sitting on my changeup? Just being able to tune in to all of those tendencies. And it's actually something that I not only, you know, think of for pitchers, but I think of when I'm calling games on ESPN. It's definitely, I mean, I feel like this instinctive learning part of just co the cognitive, how the brain works is something that I bring in the booth when I'm calling the Women's College World Series even, um, and and just thinking about how it plays a part in the game. It's, it's really, really cool. And it's probably uh, one of my favorites, honestly. Those are great examples. Unfortunately for me, I could detect on the highlight if there was an elephant missing, but anything more subtle than that, it was, it was beyond me. But <laughs> yeah. Everybody notices the most obvious, but sometimes it's the more subtle aspects. And some brains are just stitching together 
situations, what they see, what happened a little more efficiently than others. And so if you're not very good at that, you probably need to prepare more, right? You need to probably talk to your coach between innings, talk to the catcher between innings, just to see if they're noticing things that you're not. And if you're really good at it, you probably need to trust what you're the gut feeling you have. This is the gut feeling memory system we're talking about. Have you seen differences in kind of pitchers' ability to pick up? And some are just a little more skilled at that than others? Yes, definitely. Some just are kind of like how you described, just had, oh, really? Like that happened? Just had no idea. Um, and I do think communicating about it and pointing it out, and I think too, it, and today with today's technology, the amount of film that we have of being able just to not only talk about it, so using that sense of hearing it, but then being able to go back and watch it, see it with your own eyes. And I think, I mean, this is just a, a different side of this, but I think the more, the different senses that you can use to train athletes, um, in game and outside of game, outside of the game is, is only going to help them learn even better. Yeah. Well, I was, I was going to add from a hitter's perspective, you've always heard good hitters adjust, you know, at bat to at bat, but great hitters are able to adjust pit, but pitch by pitch. And Scott, I really think this is, this is what they're talking about, right? They're, they're going through the analog of what's happened when the last time it was 0-2 in this situation, this is what he threw. So now I know what pitch is coming. I, I mean, the, to have that ability, and those of us who don't have that ability really struggled with that, right? And so having that ability, the game's a whole lot easier when you know what pitch is coming, right? Absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. And if you're low, it's not the end of the world. You're just going to have to work on it, and you're going to have to inter engage a little bit more to, to get some of those patterns revealed to you. It's This is an implicit learning system as opposed to explicit, where we are intentionally trying to learn something. And so the, one of the corrections is simply, if you're not very good at the implicit, or you little struggle a little bit more with that, make it explicit by talking and studying film and preparing more. Um, that's great, really important. So this next process, um, wrist tendencies. And so you certainly build a strategy, you're aware of the situations, and then there's a moment here where you're selecting what pitch you're going to deal. And Amanda, I'm sure you're going to have lots of comments about, you know, differences in how committed you are to that pitch, right? Because every pitch carries some level of risk. So if you execute it well and it's the right pitch for the right moment, there's a lot of there's a chance for a big reward. Uh, if you execute that pitch and you miss it, you leave it hanging. Uh, the hitter was sitting on it. There's a lot of potential for negative consequences. That hitter might do damage. And so every pitch carries some degree of risk, reward and risk damage or negative consequences. And individual as individuals, we differ in our are the way we appraise or the way we evaluate risk. And so some of us are a little more risk averse. That means when we have, you know, reward opportunity and a loss opportunity or a negative consequence, we tend to really put a lot more emphasis on the potential for negative. And so we tend to want to play it safe or be a little more reserved. And then there's some brains that are just wired to go for the reward, the gusto, the glory, and just, I don't care how much this person could turn on this inside fastball and exit velocity of this thing into Jupiter. 
I'm going to go for it anyway, because the reward of jamming and potentially a swing and miss is so great. And so they put, put emphasis on the reward. So, you know, this has something to do with your commitment to a pitch, especially if it starts to conflict with your natural tendencies and you can overcome these tendencies with, you know, skill, but sometimes these tendencies will get in and create a little bit of doubt or a little bit of conflict. Talk to us about kind of what you've observed in, in the pitcher circle when it comes to kind of being a little more risk averse versus more risk tolerant. What comes to mind when I think of like risk tendencies too, is just a pitcher being willing to throw a new pitch in a tough situation. And I think that when training younger pitchers and even seeing it at the college level too, I mean, you never stop learning you never stop wanting to develop pitches. Um, so just being more comfortable to push yourself to throw that new pitch in a situation that might seem a little scary, like the base is loaded full count or base is loaded a, t- a hitter's count that likely they're expecting something else and you want to surprise them with this new pitch. Um, I think a big part of it is coaches just really consistently bringing it up and encouraging this, a pitcher to throw it, like just reminding them the the aspect that I think is so important with this is that there's not going to be a consequence on the back end from the coaching side of things, from a teammate side of things. So that when a pitcher might feel like it is a little bit risky and everybody's going to feel that a little bit differently. Right. But whatever that amount of risk is, whether it's like on a scale of one to 10, a one or a 10 that they know that they're not going to get yelled at from the coach. They're not going to have look back and see their teammates hanging their head or shaking their head. Like what the heck is going on? And I think a good way to alleviate that risk is what's going to be the reaction on the backside. So that when a pitcher gets a pitch call or she herself shakes off a pitch to get to a different pitch, she is feeling 100% behind it. Not before she throws it, but before she throws it, feeling 100% confident in it is a byproduct, I think, of the reaction that she's going to get uh, no matter the outcome. And that could be from her parents too. I think that's a big part of it and something that is taken into consideration when a pitcher is throwing. Am I going to get in trouble if I miss this pitch or if this hitter you know, hits it. But the bottom line is that she has to feel, I mean, you go over and over it. Like she has to go confident to shake off and 100% confident and whatever she's throwing. And and if she doesn't, then it doesn't really matter what pitch is called or what the situation is. It's probably not going to be a great pitch. So how can we get that pitcher to feel 100% confident based on the surroundings? I, I think that to me is a big, a big part around it is your surroundings and the people and the reaction that they give you and um, what you're already thinking about that before you throw the pitch. Yeah, that, that comfort and being able to take risks and because you know you've got the full support of those around you, that is a really powerful principle for in performance situations. You know, it's interesting we included this in the evaluation because we thought it was so important for pitchers to understand kind of their innate tendencies, right? Because if you're, if you're the a kind of person who likes to play it safe, right? You, you're trying to avoid damage. Then you've got to understand that you, the risk for you is that you'll leave opportunities on the field. You may have had opportunities to do something spectacular, to really do something to, to help your team, uh, help the count. Uh, so you've got to work against that. And if you're all about reward, 
and going for it all the time, you've got to be cautious and careful about making ill-advised pitches and trying. I remember I was a pitcher. I remember rearing back one time thinking I could blow it by this guy. I had good curveballs and breaking stuff and he kept fouling it off, fouling it off. And I just said, you know what? Forget this. I'm bringing everything I have. And I threw a heater down the middle. Everything I had, it was pumping. And he hit that ball so far. And I just realized, gosh, okay, I can't, I can't be so risky. I make an ill-advised pitch. Now, I don't brag about my performance. And obviously, that's not bragging because he hit it further than I've ever seen a ball hit. But if you're taking risks all the time, you've got to guard against you know, those situations where you could have helped the team, helped yourself if you just went with a different pitch and didn't didn't try to be risky in every pitch. Well, what's funny is I see it a little differently. You see it as a risk to go with what you believe in. I see, or really, what you really wanted to throw that pitch, right? I see it as a risk to not try something new, to not do something different that you've never done before. So I think that there are actually different ways of looking at the risk, right? Like, like, Certainly. like, are you scared to do something new or are you, are you believing, I don't know, or like, it just is a different way of looking at it. Like you were going to, you knew it was risky because the hitter might be looking for that pitch versus others might think it's risky of throwing a new pitch an uncomfortable pitch. Like there's a different sure. way of looking at it. Yeah. Well, if you knew my fastball, you knew it was risky. <laughs> okay. If, if, <laughs> no, but I think, I think that's it. Every pitch, the way you evaluate and appraise the pitch. And again, this fact, this kind of goes hand in hand with kind of your assessment of the situation and the moment, all those other factors. And so you're right. But starting to think in this kind of probabilistic way and, and, and understanding your risk and what drives you, what concerns you, what you're comfortable with, just getting pitchers to think in those terms I imagine that's really helpful to start doing that at a younger age so that you are just in the moment. You don't have to think as much and you're going to commit sooner and you're, you're going to have comfort with taking risks when you need to and and avoiding them when you need. You you hit the nail on the head with commit sooner. I think of just put it very simply. If, if I'm a young pitcher and I'm learning a drop ball and it's very uncomfortable, let's come together and say, Hey, let's throw this drop ball and this start that you're about to have five times. And so that way you as a pitcher know, okay, it's going to get called five times and I'm committing to it or three times or 10 times, whatever it is. But I think committing to it before and talking about it helps you commit to it in the moment. I'd also like to add, you know, it's a great perspective of what both of you are talking about. This is also extremely helpful from a coaching perspective or a catching perspective. Like if the pitcher is, they understand where they are. The catcher also knows where the pitcher is, but you, the coach also knows where both pitcher and catcher are. The coach knows themselves how risky they are in that situation. So you got pitching coach, head coach, catcher, and pitcher. And if you guys can all kind of get on the same page, you can help each other. You know, maybe this is a time to throw a risky pitch and and you need to override and let's override that pitch call. Or maybe it's, hey, we need to save you from yourself. You know, you need to throw this pitch. And so understanding that about the player from a coaching perspective can be really helpful. Yeah, I think, Amanda, you alluded to it as well. Great point that we've had a coach tell us that just understanding these natural tendencies was so helpful to talk with their pitchers and give them a license to take a risk when they wouldn't otherwise have done so. 
And, you know, even a coach telling us that they told their pitcher, look, I want you to, when I tell you to throw this pitch, it's on me. You just execute and you just do it. And don't worry about the consequence. If there's a consequence, that's on me. It's not on you. And so understanding those tensions and being able to push along and encourage a player to play with a little more abandon at times versus, hey, we need to back right. it off once in a while. Okay. Let's, <laughs> you know, let's play within ourselves a little bit here. Let's keep rolling. So the hitter has an approach, has a pitch, has reconciled any kind of conflict or concern that's coming from the risk, and they know what they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna throw. You know, when you step on that rubber, you have to converge your attention and start bringing your attention to a very special place for an athlete. And that is absolute focus on what's going to about to happen, blocking out any distractions. If you just gave up a leadoff double in the gap, if you know, you, you had a rough inning the last, or maybe you, maybe you did have an at bat, you know, all those things that can distract us internally, pressure of the moment, situational pressures, and then externally, you've got a, a batter that's crowding the plate, you know, or they're moving a lot in there. They've got a lot of bat waggle and just motion. You've got movement behind the, the plate, the scene behind the plate. You got noises and someone heckling you to death out, out to, you know, along the first baseline. All these sources of distraction, you've got to be able to lock in your attention, focus on performance enhancing, relevant processing, and block all these distractions out. How, you know, that is one of our measures is your ability to lock in your focus and block out distractions. How critical is that, Amanda? Yeah, I feel like this is one that a lot of people can relate to. I think the other ones might be maybe like slightly harder to understand or get right off the bat, right? But I think that this focus and distraction one, uh, no matter the age, plays a part because there's always going to be an umpire that has a small zone. There's always going to be an umpire that has a bigger zone. So they tend to be uh, less of a distraction well, or, or maybe, I don't know, maybe it is a distraction if there's a bigger zone, because then you're wanting to throw it more off the plate to get the strike call and maybe you try too hard and it goes down the middle or something. But there's all these, and, and I think a big one too, and I get asked this a lot uh, by parents is, you know, my daughter's defense just makes all these errors behind her. And, and what, what should I tell her? What should I do? That to me is a Big one for yeah. pitchers is not just about the umpire or the loud fan, but about your own teammates that aren't going to be perfect behind you that are going to commit errors. And whether you have a good defense or a poor defense, like being able to work through that distraction is huge um, because then it puts more pressure in your mind on, on you to make better pitches when you think in your mind that you have to be more perfect or strike someone out or get more swings and misses. So there are a ton of distractions within the game. It could be loud music. It could be, um, the, the umpires we said, it could be your own parents. It could be your own coaches. Uh, it can be the opposing dugout, but Oh, man, that is why, what was that Kevin Costner movie um, that was just clear the mechanism and he was just able to just get rid of all the distractions in his mind when he stepped on the mound and just focus on the task at hand. If we could all do that, then pitching would probably be a lot easier. Uh, but unfortunately, yeah. every single game, every inning, every batter is going to have its own distractions that that are brought to it. And that's honestly what kind of makes the game fun is to work through that. And it, it makes it more challenging. It really does. And 
It's a lot different too than the bullpen, uh, or it can be different than the bullpen. It's why it's important to try to work on those distractions in practice and not just in the game. No question. And again, brain, the reason we assess this is because some people, some pitchers will have an easier time. They can just, their brains allow them to lock in their attention and block out distractions easier than others. Some people, it is really hard to do that. And, if, and they're inconsistent. They can do it in a moment, but then they, they can easily get rattled and distracted. It's more variable and inconsistent. And just knowing whether distractions and their impact on your focus, you know, whether you're pretty good at blocking them out or whether you might struggle. I mean, understanding that then allows you, as you just mentioned, to, to start working on these things. And the only way to get better at dealing with distractions is to pitch in the presence of distractions. And so, you know, a lot of bullpen sessions are distraction free for a reason. And you're working on pitches and, and control and command and, and maybe a particular pitch. But if you don't introduce these kinds of distractions that can get you in the game, uh, you're not going to develop a better ability to stay locked in and focused. This is a table setter, right? Because your focus of retention doesn't just keep you from concentrating well. There's a lot of science behind how distra a distracted mind, even for a moment at the point of executing a movement, makes your movement execution less accurate. More variable. Well, don't forget about weather too. And you reminded me of yes. practicing in the rain, practicing in the cold, practicing when yeah. it's a hundred degrees. If you're going to play through it, you need to practice it. Every situation is not always perfect. <laughs> in softball and in life, you're practicing life skills, right? That That's what sports are. I'm sorry. I played ball in Southern California. Hey. It was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Maybe you were doing other uh, things and not practicing that fastball then. Once you're locked in, once you're focused, I mean, it, it, you, you have a plan, you've got your focus, then the dance between the pitcher and the hitter starts. And we always talk about this dance. And when you say the word dance, there's, there's, there's a, there's an, an assumption that it, there's a rhythm to it. There's a tempo to it. There's a cadence, there's a groove that pitchers can get in. And that's one of our, our next measures is your ability to repeat your movements rhythmically. I mean, the, the, the pitchers wind up in delivery in softball is, is really a, a really an orchestra of movement. It's a beautiful motion. It coordinates multiple upper and lower body and, and trunk core movements. I mean, it's a, when you see a great delivery, it, it, it's, it's a beautiful expression of controlled rhythmic movement. And so we measure a, a, a process in our brain that has to do with rhythm, how well we can synchronize our movements on tempo, repeat our deliveries, our motion, our movements in sync and with consistency uh, and some people are, are like musicians. They're just always in tempo and always consistent. And so consistency, as I understand it, and you can correct me, Amanda, consistency and rhythmic movements are the key to repeating your pitches and your delivery and having great control over your, your motion. And if someone is less rhythmic in their ability to keep a mental tempo of their movements and they're more variable and sometimes they rush, sometimes they're delayed or they're just more variable. 
you know, slow, fast, slow, fast, or parts of their movements are sped up. And so the other ones are playing catch up. Um, that has effects on the quality and the consistency of their pitches. Tell us a little bit about how important rhythm is. Yeah, I, I think that that's one of the first things that I look at when somebody is struggling with um, overall accuracy or command or um, also maybe there's somebody whose who's speed varies pitch to pitch or every five, you know, normally they can throw 60, but then all of a sudden, like sometimes it's 55 and they don't, and everything it seems like stays the same. I usually go back to the beginning of the pitch and the rhythm of it, the feel of it, the speed of the windup, because everybody, especially every softball pitchers wind up varies. Some people stay in their gloves. Some people come out of their gloves. Some people let their glove and their ball hand swing back. And, um, a lot of that is speed related, or it could be a different position that you get in, um, in terms of the speed, like deeper into your legs or a bigger, uh, swing back with your arm. All that has to do with, um, a rhythm that is created at the beginning of your pitch that if it's different every single pitch, well then that different rhythm and speed at the beginning of your pitch and your windup is going to affect the most important part of your pitch. And that's your release. Cause you want that release to be the same over and over and over again. So if your rhythm is the same, it's very likely that your sequencing can stay the same and that your release point can stay the same. Um, and that's going to be just a big part of just consistency with your accuracy and your speed. And I also think that this plays a big part in a softball pitcher's changeup. I think that in oftentimes you'll see a pitcher speed up their windup to try to like sell it even more to the hitter. And in turn, like they're trying to like keep up to their normal fastball rhythm, but in turn, they like go too fast through it. And then they end up giving it away too. So I think that a rhythm control really affects a pitcher's change up. Um, and the rhythm of it, like the feel of it, I, I, don't, I don't know. I just, this is my own hypothesis that pitcher and and maybe we can come up with this in months and years to come but i think that if a pitcher doesn't have great rhythm control i would be likely to say that they struggle more with their changeup in the time because that's a very finesse pitch that you have to have good rhythm and a good feel for for sure you know what we're going to we're going to put that to the hypothesis to the test that's a brilliant hypothesis we work with a some all the a lot of the top division one college programs. We have lots of pitching data and we can actually look at that. I bet you are nailed it. There has to be some correlation. I think. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. That, that mental metronome, you know, is what keeps the body in tempo and in beat. And, you know, if you have lots of motion and lots of movement and different motion, your brain is working overtime to try to synchronize all that. It, as consistently and milliseconds off can be the difference between being consistent and being highly variable. And so, you know, it's funny in, in, we were with a, a lot of professional baseball teams and they have some pitchers who, they, you know, ha, when they're in the windup, right. Baseball has the stretch and the windup when they're in the windup, they struggle with control and their rhythm and the consistency. And when they put them in the stretch, it goes away because there's fewer motions, fewer movements they have to synchronize. And so there is something to be said. If you're, if you don't have really good rhythm control, you probably need to think about, you know, the complexity of the movements in your windup and trying to simplify things because rhythm has to do with the mechanics, as you pointed out, but it also has to do with your brain's timing system. It, it, it's a timing system in the brain that tells the body when and 
organizes the sequence and unfolding of movements. And I'll end it with saying like, this is a prime example that you need to find what wind up works best for you. I mean, just because Jenny, everybody wants to copy Jenny Finch's windup or Montana Fouts or insert, you know, the the most favorite pitcher or my windup, whoever. And it's like that, my windup might not work for you. It, it worked for me. And so just playing with it and seeing what what is best that can work for you. And I would start, Scott, at a more simple windup and then try to see if you can add on or tweak some things. But I would always start simple um, and then build from there because then I feel like you're setting yourself up for more success. And if you have lower rhythm control, you may end up staying with a simple windup because, hey, you can manage that. Yes. And it allows you to achieve the level of control and command that you need to be successful. And if you have really good rhythm control, you probably can handle some some extra stuff and some you know and, and push the envelope. I, I like was going to say the hitters were we we think of Gary Sheffield. Everyone wanted to do that bat waggle, man. How, how whip 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 right? But not all of us could yeah. do that. <laughs> I think you're really you know before we move on to the last piece here, we're talking about consistent repeatability. That's what we hear all the time is how consistent and repeatable are your motions and your mechanics. And I think that's what this one really hits on. So and you alluded to it. I mean. <laughs> Once you have that consistent and that release, and then obviously you learn the, the how to hold the ball and release the ball for your different pitches, and there's a mechanical, technical aspect to that, you know, and with good consistency, you, you I think you're going to be right. I think we have seen a little bit of that, that, that better rhythm leads to better control. And, and you know, you don't always, though, to get to this last process, have your A game things aren't snapping the way you want them to snap. You're, you know, the control isn't as solid as, as you want it to be. And so the pitcher's faced with a dilemma. Do I keep doing what I've been doing and keep getting the effect I don't want? Or do I start to make an adjustment? How do I make an adjustment? And so sometimes there's an obvious mechanical adjustment, but there's also brain systems that are trying to help us make adjustments to the commands that are going out and the predictions of, of our movements that are going out. And so when you don't have the pitch doing what you want it to do, there's an aspect to correcting that where you've got to put the brakes on, suppress kind of what your brain is doing now so you can allow a change and a correction in your movement. And so this motor command task that we have looks at that first aspect of that. How well can we in split second timeframes suppress movements that we don't want, that are undesired? You know, when you're breaking a mechanical habit, you're really relying on this system because you've got to break a habit that keeps wanting to express itself in this pitch so that you can adapt and adopt a new one. Uh, Same is happening in a game, in the heat of the moment, your ability to make these subtle adjustments rests on your ability to suppress the ones that are getting in the way and then correct them and make that adjustment. And so we look at kind of your ability to suppress these moments. When you think about making adjustments on those days where things just aren't going your way and you don't have it, how critical is it for pitchers to to work on that and develop that ability to adjust? Yeah, this to me is just practicing 101. when I practiced as a a young kid hitting, pitching, whatever it was like, I was not going to make the same mistake three times in a row. Like I had a coach that, that told me that, 
Um, and that always stuck with me. So if I was hitting, I popped two balls up, then that third one, you better believe I was going to hit a ground ball before I popped it up again. So it's like, there are different ways to practice this and put it in your head that you just don't want to make the same mistake three times in a row because by practicing making adjustments, I mean, our game is a game of adjustments, whether it's the instinctive learning part of it or focus and distraction, like you're, it's a constant adjustment. Now it's more about the mechanical adjustments that can be worked on. Of course, at practice or should be worked on at practice and just continuing to fine tune. I mean, no pitcher is ever perfect. No hitter is ever perfect. Pitching is true, especially softball pitching is one of the hardest things to do in all of sports. Like the windmill, what we're doing, it's like it awes everybody. So to be able to create good motor command at practice by pitching with your eyes closed, by pitching in front of a mirror, by having somebody video yourself and compare it to a year ago or to last week or whatever it is, like there are ways to me to work on this because you said it, Scott, it's like not only do we need to make adjustments with their mechanics at practice, of course, because it builds that good muscle memory that we want to take into a game, but not every game is going to feel the same. And as much as we can say, or, or maybe we were coached at a young age, like the game, you should just trust your preparation. You shouldn't think about mechanics. Like there are times that a pitcher has to think of her mechanics. There has to be times in a game where your mechanics aren't going to be perfect. And you need to make those small adjustments in order to go deeper into the game, in order to go longer into the game to help your team. That's the ultimate goal, right? So I do think that you need to be able to uh, make those adjustments in game as much as you are, are able to make it at practice because it's just going to make you better and, and be able to stay in the game longer. Yeah, I love what you're saying here. And, and from a brain standpoint, missing something in practice is as important as hitting your target because it affords that opportunity, opportunity, whatever that word is, <laughs> opportunity to make that corrective adjustment. To, to correct it. And yeah, we have lots of cool ideas about based on kind of the science of motor control and, and correction and the brain's ability to detect when you make a mistake, you know, you're trying to avoid making a mistake, but sometimes you, you, the brain, you should let the brain make the mistake intentionally miss your spot up into the left, miss your spot down into the right. Now come back to your spot and go back down building that brain's ability to recognize the the motor signature that produced that effect and then learn teaching it to to be better and better at detecting and making these adjustments to hit your target and move around your target there's a whole different way of building control and command that uh, i think we'll start to explore in the years to come that, that will help pitchers develop it more efficiently more effectively and then value when you miss, right? Nobody likes to miss, but there's value in missing because it affords the opportunity, like you said, to work on this. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think too, by like not throwing the same pitch over and over and over again, I, I know that I got in a bad habit of doing that as a pitcher is because it's just like, all right, today I want to work on my drop ball and I want to get it right. And I'm going to go out and I want to throw 60 in a row. And it's like, that's probably not the best thing because that's not actually what's happening in a game. And even though you want to work on it, going to be able to, okay, I'm just going to go drop all change up, drop all change up and work on my drop all still that way, but it's going to help my motor command by 
adjusting my body from from pitch to pitch instead of just relying on one or just going to one pitch over and over again. There's a really important progression there, right? You might work on the drop ball in the very beginning if you're just trying to add the drop ball and you're building it. And so you're repeating it just to get the feel for it and just understand it. But you're absolutely right. That is the most basic rung of the ladder. Then you've got to embed it because every your hand position changes. You know, you're there's a there's a rhythmicity, there's a body mechanic that's associated with those pitches and then alternating them, doing the, the most mechanically different pitches after one and another. You've got to learn how to control that. Amanda, do you have a, a couple minutes to end the podcast with some uh, random and funny questions? Yeah, sure. What's the uh, best college softball story you have for the audience? That's a great question. I think of like calling so many games now and then just being a player myself. I mean, can it be a memory? Oh, totally. Your question. Okay. So I played at Texas A&M and we had a ton of history in the sport, a, a program that was one of the best in the eighties. And we hadn't been to the world series in 20 years. And so my junior year we're in super regionals and everything's on the line. We end up beating Florida at home to make it to the world series for the first time. And literally like right at 20 years, I think it was a 20 year anniversary um, and so I don't know, that was a really cool moment. Of course you want to make it to the world series, but it even means something even more special to celebrate with your teammates and know that you did something that hadn't been done in a while for, for your program. That was my favorite memory was beating Florida and super regionals my junior year. I'm glad you gave a personal player story. Cause now I'm going to ask you what's the best game you've ever called, uh, on the air. Oh man. So there was, um, we had some really good ones, uh, two years ago, the 2021 women's college world series was probably the best one in history. And so the first game of the world series, I was calling it, it was James Madison versus Oklahoma. Oklahoma was the number one seed. James Madison had a pitcher named Odyssey Alexander, who nobody really knew of before she ended up beating Oklahoma in the first game of the world series and later ended up becoming a star. And that just doesn't happen very often that a mid-major makes a World Series, nevertheless, is the team that beats the one seed, the one overall seed. Um, and she just, she seriously became a star after that game and played well that World Series. So that was so memorable. Well, that's awesome. The uh, last question, this gets brought up a lot. And it's this dynamic between major league hitters and softball pitchers. If you got to face one major league hitter, could be present, could be past, who, who would you pick to face? I'd want to, so Astros are my team. I'd want to say somebody like Jose Altuve okay. or Alex Bregman or Jordan Alvarez, but they're all so good. Like, I feel <laughs> like they would hit off of me, you know, like I want to throw against somebody that I feel like I'm going to have success against. So those are going to be the people that I don't, I don't even know their names and would probably be the loudest too. I feel like say, Oh, I can hit off of a softball pitcher and it's so easy. So those are my favorite players. I for sure want a chance. I think a better question would have been, who would you like to embarrass? That's a good, that's that's a nice twist. Well, Amanda, thanks so much for joining us. We had a blast with you today. Uh, I'm sure we'll have you on again to talk more about, you know, the exposure, the usability. You've now, we've talked through the battery. Now we can't wait to talk about the results and what you've been seeing, but thanks so much for your time today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to the S2 Cognition Podcast. In summation, the S2 evaluation covers the cognitive stages and specific processes that unfold and impact every pitch. The power of breaking down a pitcher's unique pattern of cognitive advantages and disadvantages is the ability to understand the why behind a pitcher's struggles and a pitcher's exceptional capabilities. Pitchers can be highly skilled in some of these cognitive processes and struggle in others, in part due to their individual genetics and in part due to the way they've shaped those processes through their experiences, training, and performing. Understanding the unique pattern of every pitcher's cognitive skills is foundational for understanding the capabilities for high-performance decision makers, and equally as important, lays the foundation for customizing training to amplify strengths and build weaker areas to accelerate the pitcher's potential for becoming the most effective and disciplined decision maker she can be on the mound. If you like the content we are putting out, please subscribe with that plus sign at the top of your app, leave a review about the episode, and share it with a friend. Follow us on Twitter at S2Cognition and Instagram at S2PeriodCognition. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, please visit our website at s2cognition.com slash podcast. Thanks again for listening to the S2Cognition podcast. I'm your host, Harrison Hunter, signing off for now. Talk to you on the next episode.